Hello and welcome to the best podcast, Teachers I'm Teaching. I am very pleased to have Chris Johnson with us today. We've done a lot of our journey in teaching together and uh, both have learnt lots and uh, from our mistakes and had a good laugh about it and also continue to discover things and that's why he's someone that, uh, you know, he and I fit well together in that way because we're constantly looking and searching and I'm going to be... Uh, Picking on Chris's brain and his experience to find out what he's learnt from his experience as a singing teacher. But before we go any further, Chris, I'd love to hear a little bit about your singing journey and how you got started. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, honoured and I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's, um, it's great to talk about me, I think, every every day yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very much this is just another cracking formalized opportunity um yes yeah, so, so actually my my life um as a singer it did start early to be honest um as much as as i'll explain i came to the to the professional side of it and and then the coaching a bit later but my earliest memories anyway are of music and are of um obsessing over singers sort of literally beginning with Michael Jackson when I, in 1984 probably um, and 85 because my mum was a major fan and my dad was into Motown. So, so I, I know through my childhood I had this um, strong desire to, to be this singer and be emotive and, and get that out of me. Um, but, you know, like the way kind of life works, the environment doesn't necessarily drag it out of you until a certain time. And uh, yeah, I met this um, I met this girl at youth club um, who heard me singing. So at youth club, you could put your own tape on. And uh, I was about maybe fourteen or fifteen at the time, and I put my tape on, and it was Maxwell and uh, D'Angelo, people like that. And obviously, everyone in the club was like, "What the fuck is this stuff?" Right? Because it was all about techno back then. Um, so I, obviously I got completely berated, uh, and I had to take my music off. Obviously I was, I was hurt deeply, but then this girl came over and was like, I heard you singing a little bit just then. Cause I got excited. And, uh, she gave me the phone number to my first singing teacher, which I left in a drawer for at least another two years. Um, and, uh, I found it when I was about just about coming up to 16 years old um, and then I looked at it and I just remembered, I was like, oh, I've always wanted to do this, always wanted to do this. And mum's always shouting up the stairs going, shut up, because I'm singing too loud in my bedroom. Um, she's trying to watch EastEnders. Um, and in the end, I was like, right, I'm going to do it. And this, this was about the time Connor Reeves came out. I don't know if you remember Connor Reeves. It's probably about 1997 or something like that. And so I just took the plunge. And from then, that's like, that was a pivotal moment in my career because I then joined a choir and um, I started to learn and sing with people and I started to have voice lessons, um, none of which were particularly technical, um, but I met um, uh, all, all the time I went through school and I, I met a lot of the people that I still connect with now in that choir um, and that choir led me to my, my two bands that I ended up being professional in. Um, which first one began about 2002 or 2003 or something. Um, and I met those guys in that choir and we went out on the road um, and did some professional work. All this time I was actually in finance. So I was doing this kind of normal progression of, of employment um, in the background. But um, the move to teaching came when that employment, 2007 credit crunch, um, basically left my company in such a way that I saw the credit crunch happening on the news on the one day. And the next day I went to work, uh, my boss said, yeah, sorry, we're gonna have to let you go. Uh, and I was like, Oh my God, why? And he's like, have you seen the news? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I saw it yesterday. And so that was it. The financial crisis um, ended my career in 24 hours. Um, and that was a difficult time, but, um, 
beautifully the way that that's kind of life's way of kicking me up the ass and saying, come on, mate, you're 25. Uh, and you should have, you should, you should have made this step to music back when you were 15, when you phoned that singing teacher, you know, the proper step to music. So in the end, after a bit of a flailing attempt to get myself back in the employment market, um, I realized that in the situation I was in, music was the only provider of any kind of income at all. And it just about covered my rent and it just about covered some food. Um, so I went full into that and, and that involved using my last bit of available credit to buy um, a, a laptop um, and a piano, um, at which point uh, HSBC said no after that <laughs> so I was like oh thank god I got those two in because it was a uh, I just needed I needed those two instruments in order to make this work and and I think as well from that I paid the subscription to speech level singing in which case I outlaid that money and I began my singing teaching journey at that point um, which was really great and that's that's kind of like that's how I made it into singing coaching and here I am now after um, 10 years um, or so, um, having built a business and taught in three different cities. Uh, I have a podcast called The Naked Vocalist uh, and a blog and many connections along the way, you being one, Lynn, um, my business partner, Steve Giles. I've had an amazing time since then, but that is the potted history of how I actually ended up in, in vocal coaching. So in the beginning, when I first knew you, you were still gigging quite a lot. And in fact, you were gigging really until a couple of years ago. How did, mm. uh, did that help hinder or what was, you know, how was that experience of gigging and teaching? What the pros and cons of that? Yeah, it was, it was kind of, at times it was amazing um, because what I would learn in the studio or from um, the master teachers that would come over, I could uh, try it out directly on stage. Um, obviously, in the beginning, when you're learning something, it was very much try it out on stage, completely wreck it, <laughs> and, and then come back again. But then, then at times you had epiphanies as well, and suddenly you start to realise stuff. Um, one of the big plus points in my performance career was singing with Steve, Steve Jars, in that we went to every gig together in the van, sat side by side Steve obviously was also um working his way through his teaching journey and so we got to do a lot of talking about what we've learned and then what just happened on stage so you'd sit in the van and go I really screwed up tonight mate <laughs> and then we would you know instantly start talking about the technicalities of what just happened um, we'll be cooling down together. It's not like you've got one in the car going, stop making funny noises, like he totally understood. Um, but I think as a, as a transfer to my clients, performing was, was really great in that sense because um, I have a, a way of empathising with how, what people go through. Not only what people go through on stage, what people go through in their career, um, even financially, I can understand that side of it. Um, but when it comes to learning a new skill and how much of a pain in the ass that is when you step on stage and you don't really know what you're doing and you don't know what you're aiming for, but you've got a tool to try and apply it, um, I, can, I can relate to all of that stuff. And I think in the end, um, that's why I've ended up where I've ended up as a coach anyway, because I do, do work with people who, who experience all that. And I feel like we... The, the, whatever it is, the forces that I don't know bring us together as um, coach and client. And we have, a, we have a mutually beneficial experience because of we're both aligned like that. So I, I really value my performance experience and uh, actually hope it's not over yet. So you've put it on pause or what's happened? Yeah, so um, it's, oh, I feel really bad saying it, but they're not going to listen to it anyway, and Steve understands, but... The, the the band that we were in, it was great for so long, paid the bills, you know, all that stuff. It it's my passion. Um but it didn't pay me the dividends in in my soul 
that I wanted it to in the last few years. Um, I haven't really looked too deeply into why that is. I just responded to the feeling in me that said, you need to give this a break. Uh, this is, you're just not feeling it. Um, I think it's just like, even like the things that like equipment goes wrong and you have to go and speak to the client and say, can't get any sound. <laughs> and, uh, I hate that. I hate that stuff, but it's even little things like that where you just think if I had my own sound crew, um, or I just turned up at the gig, you know, and I was part of a whole night, I wouldn't be responsible for all this stuff. And I think in the end, a bit of that got to me. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it, it, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm hoping to kind of liven it up with, and I've been singing the same songs for nearly 15 years as well. So it's a, it's a long time to be singing <laughs> the same ones. So when you first started teaching, what were the kind of challenges that you had? Oh, the one that sticks out for me, um, the first challenge was the first client, uh, which made me want to give up straight away. Um, I wanted, I didn't want to do it anymore um, because that client was um, so difficult in that they had a technical issue that was really strong. Um, and it was, it was the wrong time for me to get that client. It was really too, cause I had limited tools, limited understanding. Even my ears didn't tell me anything very valuable. Um, so I flailed at that one and I, I, I remember it vividly. I ignored his phone calls. I didn't answer the emails cause I was so scared, um, that I'd made the wrong decision and I was, I was contemplating life. And then my second client came in, um, who only stopped having lessons with me six months ago, which was so like, thank you, Andre, for coming in, because you, you made me kind of like, because he, he, he livened me up as well. I think he was quite, he's a nice guy. Um, we worked together and that, that we worked together for a long time and, and he didn't throw me as much. <laughs> so I needed that guy at that time to, to get over that first challenge of, of realizing I don't know what anything that I'm, what I'm doing. Um, one of the other challenges that I met maybe a year down the line after that was uh, struggling with how my voice could actually manage um, the schedule, whereby I was gigging a bit more often um, I was teaching maybe getting up to 15, maybe 20 hours a week. And uh, every day my voice would be a nightmare every day. Um, I don't know why really when I look back, but I had to start investing in money. Um, it, and I came to see you, I remember at, at one time as well, to make, made the trip down there which was really helpful because I needed some, I needed to understand. And, and I was teaching at ACM as well. So that was like a classroom day. I didn't know how to get through that initially. And I think it, there's definitely an element of um, your body needs time to accept this new schedule. And it's very difficult to find the efficiencies in your voice when it's getting tired so quickly. So time was a factor as well as concentrating on things like vocal fold closure and exercises to bring about something that's rich but not high effort. Obviously, that's the uh, the key to efficiency, right? You know, a strong sound, I don't really feel like I need to make it with any effort. Um, when I found some of those epiphanies or had them, then my voice started to get better every week from singing all week um, and doing gigs and coming back on the Monday, and I was stronger um, but I, that was a difficult challenge for me because every, every day then becomes um, uh, hard to deal with mentally because you've got to demonstrate and no one wants to sound like a dick when they sing to a client, right? So it's like, I've got to sing you this now, but I'm going to sound awful. Um, that happens every day and you start to feel bad about yourself. And then you go on stage and you just wreck someone's first dance, mm -hmm. you know, all those things that just happen day to day. And then you get back on Monday and go, oh my God, I've got to be here again. Um, but yeah, perseverance, get some help. 
definitely don't let it continue. Um, yeah, and then you can use those busy weeks to a, to a point, of course, to actually strengthen your technique rather than just constantly weaken you. So what kind of strategies did you engage? Well, you know, look, looking down the line, um, there was a strong focus on lowering the larynx. And as much as the product of some strain is that the larynx rises, um, I'm not so sure in my case that the resolution was to lower the larynx because it was high. Um, my There was other stresses going on in my body mm-hmm. um, and a lack of energy at the source, as in I was maybe a little too soft or a little too breathy because before I just shouted, you know, like everyone does. So you kind of go to the other side of the needle and start to do the voice preservation thing. Um, that doesn't help that that much either because you can easily slide into a voice that lacks energy and then you're inefficient. Um, and so I, knowing that I had some tools in my toolkit, I would, I would be there going, right, the larynx is up, get it down, get it down, get it down, training myself. And uh, that did not help me. Mm-hmm. It did not help me because as, as we discovered, you know, when we worked that time, I think it was – it must be like eight years ago now or something. Um, we worked on ah, 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 because it was obvious that the voice was, was lacking in energy. And it was a bit like here, you know, self-preservation mode. It was too fluffy, too low larynx. It's all I knew what to do. Um, so in the end, it was generating energy at the source. Um, and that really helped me. Because then I, what I would do is I would do that on the way to a gig the gig would be much clearer in voice. And then the next day, that's where the gig has solidified the technique. I've sang in that new way. And when I woke up in the morning, it was more like 30% still with me. And then I'd carry on the process again. Then the next day it was 40% with me and 50% and a few knocks here and there, but that's, that's kind of how I dealt with it. And I, and I found that, I found that out about my voice over the years that, um, my voice responds really well to that type of training rather than larynx manipulation. I'd totally forgotten that this is where I'd actually learnt that lesson was from you. You know, when t- people talk about warming up um, and they always ask, you know, how long should I warm up for? I always use the example of, well, some people only need a couple of minutes and their voice is ready to go. Depends where they are. Other people need half an hour, maybe 40 minutes. And I learned that from you, actually, because I remember we had a discussion about how long you need to, to get your voice, do, your, do stuff with your voice before it's actually in the right place. And, and um, I just remember you saying that for you, your voice doesn't work until you've actually been working at it for about 30, 40 minutes. Is that still correct or has that changed? No, no, no. So, so yeah, so at, for such a long time that was pretty much it 30 40 minutes would be what i would have to do and obviously we're playing a game of efficiency now so if i can't calibrate in 40 minutes um i'm tiring my vocal folds more in that sense um and in certain states that i was in that was not a good look to be warming up for that long but honestly it's it's just what it is what it is um nowadays i think i understand my body a bit more um, not just my voice um, and uh, my ability to get into where I need to get to has has gone down by quite a lot mm. because, um, because of the way I've looked at the holistic nature of things, especially when it comes to the tongue. I think like articulators might not release until you start actually saying vowels and consonants for quite a while. Um, so just the act of speaking and maybe even eating gets someone there quicker than if they don't, you know. So um, I think going along the line, the the shorter you can get your warm-up, I think the more you probably are aligned with a healthy life mm. and, a, and a healthy posture and all those things. Mm. Um, but if you drive a lot, if you work on the um, computer a lot, it's going to be very hard to get that time down to almost nil because it's literally life that has been built over thousands of years by humans 
presents us with challenges that almost make it like really hard to just go ta-da and just be ready to go you know even just stress and blue screens i think even even they can just add five minutes on the warm-up while you just calm your heart rate down <laughs> you know? so it's like oh yeah i'm not i don't and the reason why i say that is because i don't want anybody to feel bad about warming up for a long time i just i just think it's worth looking deeper at it mm. um, and figuring out what, what is it that does that to me and how can I deal with that to, to make me feel readier because confidence comes from feeling ready anyway. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about it now. So further to what you were saying about looking at yourself more holistically with regards to warming up and maybe being able to cut down a bit if, you know, you're not, if you're keeping healthy and hydrated, etc. What are your thoughts then on the fact that physiology from one singer to another may also impact? Like you, I mean, I talk about sometimes there's some singers who seem to have vocal folds of steel and other ones that like you hardly even whisper at them and suddenly they go, oh, you know, I can't deal with that. And they're swollen. So <laughs> would that also factor into a warm up? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And uh, yes, yeah, I mean, speech, speech as well, um, in that speech can contain all of those issues that you describe anyway. Like someone with a robust speaking voice, for example, is probably not going to take that much time to warm up into belting, whereas somebody who speaks lightly might feel that they really have to get themselves in the zone to belt. Mm. Um, is that physiological or is that mental? And uh, I think arguably it begins with the personality and how they use their voice day to day. So, yeah, I find it hard sometimes to kind of separate the the, the personality and the voice um, in order to figure out what's, what's stopping you from getting there quicker. Um, and it's very hard. The reason Sorry. I'm saying this is I remember... Ingo Tietze talking about some people have a thicker lamina propria, mm. which gives them more endurance. Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, something I've heard him say. And I think Rena Gupta had also said, like, mm. there's people looking into it and it sounds like a feasible something or another. Um, you know, it's even down to the fact that when I, I interview some singers who are really amazing and they they're able to get into the zone so quickly and i talk to them a lot about stuff and um even though breathing gets a little bit like pushed here and back and there and everywhere um a lot of the great singers that i've spoken to do say that it's none of this is possible if you can't do it on the breath effectively and whatever they mean by that is whatever they mean by that but if the breath stream is a pain in the bum then someone doesn't feel like they can sing on it straight away anyway. And they may need to get themselves physically ready so that um, they can sing better or longer because efficiency, the lamina propria can certainly generate a, um, a, a richer sound with lower pressure from the lungs. That's one thing. Um, but maybe a lot of singers who have physical challenges aren't able to generate a steady air pressure anyway um, from maybe spine curvature or a head that hangs forward or for ladies like high heels, for instance. Um, I think that's always going to create efficiency and warming up issues physiologically. So someone working out those is going to be very interesting. And then how much time do you spend in speech? Do you need to offset that by stretching out more frequently in the day to leave yourself more ready? Um, that's interesting, isn't it? Because a baritone might speak so deeply, so short in vocal fold, but the way we're all different is that baritone may have also the capacity to stretch four, even five octaves. Does that mean that that capacity means that that baritone may have to go and use a top-down approach more frequently or sooner in the warm-up than someone else? Maybe. I think, yeah, the physiologically, the physiology is very, very strange, actually. And men speaking so deeply and nowadays singing so high, mm -hmm. I think that, that the way they warm up um, 
sometimes interests me because Inga would would argue that ladies would often speak in the voice they need to sing in anyway. So they might be able to step into it a little bit more readily. Mm. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of talking points that we can glean from science and then make sense of it in the studio. Some of the science might be like, actually, I see that in the studio and it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it must be something else because that doesn't make sense, but it's a whole other podcast probably. Well, that's a nice little segue into the science aspect of singing. So I know we've uh, kind of talked about the science aspect and how it feeds into our teaching or not, and uh, I think both both of us have been up and down about it, and I was just wondering where are you at now? How does voice science, how has that informed you uh, and how do you utilise it, if at all, in your teaching? Mm, well, I mean, I'm very thankful for all the training that we've managed to glean from uh, Ingo and, and Vocology in practice. Um, I talked to Ingo frequently, which was, which is very, very um, lucky for me. I'm so, so grateful to that because we, along with Ingo and a bunch of other teachers and other connections that I made as well in terms of science and pedagogy, you do get to have a lot of discussions about science and initially, discovering science is exciting because it does um, then start to guide you into choices that you didn't know were either possible or they rationalise your choices so much more that you can apply your tools much more effectively um, and maybe diagnose more effectively as well. So in the beginning, I, I um, certainly felt that science gave me that skill um as much as it took a lot of time to absorb it as if anybody's probably on that vibe right now stick with it um and then you know like we we get the ability as humans to just like take in a certain amount of information at a time so i took in loads of science um then i took in loads of physiology uh and the biomechanical influences on the larynx and then you start going down that road um and you might work on something like tongue tension, for instance, and then you'll realize, oh, so the tongue has an incredible influence on the larynx and the hyoid bone. Uh, then you go down that road and then you look at like, oh, hang on, now the breathing and the hips and everything. And then you start to do that. And all these teachings, and what they do is, don't get me wrong, like we have to experiment to find our direction um, and find out how we can best serve the client, of course, right? But what it did is it, going into those other areas served to give me the better understanding of where the science was and wasn't applicable and whereby things have an acoustic rationale. You could give it a formal and a harmonic description that has a strong second harmonic. It must be because the first formant is blah, 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 blah. But you can get a strong harmonic at the source. So are we talking, is it at the source? And how do you get a strong harmonic at the source without injuring yourself? Well, the source has to vibrate freely and biomechanically. If it's challenged, um, it won't vibrate freely. In which case, do we look to form and tune to make that better? Or do we look to get someone's internal obliques to be a little less contracted on the onset of the phrase, right? So... So I'm kind of like, I used to hold science very high, but now I hold physiology and psychology a little bit higher. And then I bring in science and formant tuning as a way of refining that. Because let's face it, you can't formant tune unless your tongue is free to create the shape. Um, and a lot of formant tuning as well is automatic, as in the brain perceives a sound and your body fulfills it but just like I am now I don't need to think about a form and harmonic relationship now because this is a skill that requires no um, management from me and singing can be that that way it can require very little management as long as the structures that are able to serve your brain's um, uh, conception of sound if they're free enough to readjust a lot of formant tuning is uh, automatic, in which case we don't need to look at it scientifically. We need 
flexibility, self-efficacy, a good conception of how the sound should sound. And then if we need to form and tune it for particular energy reasons, especially if you're an opera singer, obviously, then we get more scientific about it. Um, lastly, if, if you have a handle on science and acoustic science, it does give you a really good opportunity to have a, like a BS meter as well. So when you're taking on information from different places, I'm so thankful for the training that I've had because it means I can read a book and take the information on and adjust it to the situation of a contemporary singer because most of what I read, it comes from classical, um, and then create a really effective exercise out of it that's been customised by my knowledge mm but it's been given to me by a different pedagogue in a different century, you know? I think science, for that reason, is absolutely amazing. It's helped me to, to generate this new toolkit from old, from old tools into, into contemporary use. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is like pulling in from other disciplines as well. So, I, you know, I've used sports um, psychology and physiology. Yeah and exercises to help with functional vocal fold exercises, for instance, um, and, and also speech and language uh, therapy exercises I've adapted um, in order to help with various technical things. So they're complementary uh, but help you with applying it into, as you said, the contemporary field and I think that is for me the biggest frustration about the sciences as I started to delve into it was realizing that oh there's all this amazing information out there but not about the kind of people that I deal with (laughs) (laughs) and so how do I make this useful or is it useful or is it not useful you know so it took a while to sift through that Um, the other thing too which really amazed me was that understanding of actually science doesn't know it all and science can be wrong yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, I think I was thinking the other day, and I, I know this is a minefield in itself, but to involve singing teachers more frequently as a baseline for a singing research project by a scientist would be absolutely brilliant. And even if it's like a panel of singing teachers with different views, so you don't get obviously locked in one skewed view of something. Um, I don't know why they don't do that and why, as you know, Dave Stroud has spoken about the markets that we experience, like a lot of the research is for choral and classical and that's just such a tiny wedge of the pie. And then you get like the, the contemporary music business in terms of the money it generates the world. It's billions and billions and billions, but nobody invests in that. They still go classical. Thankful for the research, but still go classical. And then you get like your um, karaoke singer. Um, I mean, they're an even bigger market to be served. And uh, yeah, so the, the focus of research versus who needs it is so skewed at the moment and they don't leave you in the research with the sounds that they judged um they just say they sang an e on this blah 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 in chess register and i'm sat there going yeah but i've heard chess register in a lot of things and it's not chess yeah so how do you know mr science man um that that's chess and and uh, it's down to their and if they're not a singer obviously they're just going on what they've heard and, and so i think i think it really needs a shake up doesn't it it does i don't know well, I think bit by bit we can do that. And, and we've, yes. we've obviously got... Change the world. Yeah, <laughs> Guy's attention and he's accepting the fact that there is this huge difference and there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the contemporary uh, methodology which uh, he hadn't really thought about or encountered. No, but he's, he is thank, thankfully putting more effort into that side of things than, than most of the research market. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, bit by bit it'll change. And that's yeah. why also we do have these kind of discussions is to pass that on to other singing teachers to go, you need to take this further, you need to push for it, you need to advocate for it, you need to encourage it, or maybe you need to go do it. 
you know, because yes. there will be some people out there that want to go down that route. I want to take another tack. Um, it's quite often singing teachers struggle with um, marketing and building their businesses. And I know that when we first met, you were living and working down south and you just made this decision, big decision, to move into London, which is obviously a big move on many levels and literally pretty much start all over again as far as building your own practice and studio is concerned. So what sort of advice can you give uh, up-and-coming singing teachers in building their studios, things that you wish maybe you'd started earlier or that you hadn't done at all? Yeah, well, oh, God, there's so many. Um, that I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like... Uh, <laughs> I think I think I think initially, like I I can having taught in Salisbury, um, initially, I I can completely uh, sympathise with small town, right? Because small town business generation can be very difficult. And actually, at the time I was teaching there, um, you noticed the city itself was quite sort of. Uh, and it was entering into a period of degradation because of the credit crunch and you know nobody even went to the pub anymore you know they just it was just a bit of a ghost town and so I, I, I noticed that in the market for singing and so you have to provide or be a bit more nifty in that sense when you're teaching in a small place to try and um, uh, develop and generate clients um, I was also teaching in Southampton whereby the um, demographic, obviously, a number of people was much bigger. But in that sense, I was riding off of the name of Gareth Henderson and River Studios. So um, I built myself a quite a good good business there and reputation there, but would that help? Um, so when I came to London, I came into a big city and people knew me in Southampton from Salisbury. It's basically, you know, they're so close. So coming to London was very different for me because I felt like, oh, there's some really, there's like the, some of the country's most amazing teachers here for a start. Um, there's a, nobody knows who I am and many people are professional and maybe I felt a bit intimidated by all of those scenarios, but took the plunge, took the plunge anyway. And there was a, there were a couple of things that I've done in the past um, that really always come back and help me with my business. Uh, the comments of clients. So some clients still came to me in London from Southampton, which to me was like, Oh, I'm honored uh, that you would do that. Right. Um, and when we've had discussions in the past, one of the things I've noticed that have been, have been kept loyal clients, let's say, is the fact that I kept training. They knew I kept training. And when I would come back from training, I'd be like, let's try something. Um, and then we would make some more progress. They really valued that and they wanted to stay in that environment and they were willing to travel a long way for that. So um, the amount of self-investment that you would put in as a teacher and that your clients know that, see the fruits of it as well, it does, it does take a small client, client base and it keeps it with you even when you change locations. Um, so I noticed that actually... Uh, the other thing that was really interesting was working at ACM. ACM is not that far from London. It's not that far from Southampton either um, or Salisbury. But uh, I still see a lot of students from ACM. They still come in. And uh, I guess one of the reasons for that would be maybe because we just got on well in that environment. They trust me. They know I'm not going to judge them. I can help them in some way and they'll pay money for that. That's fine. Right. That's, that's a good business plan. Um, the other thing that ACM gave me was many eyes at once. So being able to work with a singer in front of a bunch of people, which is nerve wracking in itself, but you've got, you've got to kind of suck that bit up. If you, you know, what's going to work, it's going to work. And sometimes it won't fuck it. doesn't matter. <laughs> it's not going to work. It, there's a wild card, but I would have a hundred people a week seeing me work with someone. And that is incredibly valuable in sticking in people's minds. 
Um, and it wasn't just, you know, we, I'd have them across the whole term. Then I would cover classes. I saw thousands of singers in five years. So many people that that still I left four years ago and it's still providing me with um, business. So you could take any scenario where you get in front of many eyes and you make a difference and you help them to understand something you connect. That's one big thing about, about being successful. Maybe a lot of teachers don't want to put themselves in that environment just yet that's fine you've got to build your confidence but it's quite hard to have a client base that is big enough for you to fill your cancellations instantaneously be fully booked every week um, and still generate some interest when you're working with people one by one by one by one across the course of five years and you know what it's like people book in once a week when they're like amateurs and whatever so you you might be seeing people one by one, but you might not be seeing a lot of footfall because the same people have got your slots, right? So after a year, you've only really met 30 people. Um, so I think that's massively interesting is that you can, you can have a very reliable client base if you can extend that number by group teaching. Um, but the last thing I thought was great was, was Google Ads and how – if you've got the right website and I put some effort into that website video, if someone can get to know you in a minute and a half on your front page and they can book in like that because they're impulsive, then uh, I used to answer all the emails. Cool. Let's book you in. Cool. Um, Not only do I take time to reply and they go off the boil, but I'm answering emails on a Saturday and Sunday and I don't want to do that. Right. So if you talk to them via your video, it's like it feels like they're with you. They can book straight away. Again, my clients just went whoop. And then I added an extra day and think I would be still building an extra day. And within a month, whoop, straight in. Like it, it wasn't difficult when there was momentum in place like that. And I think I think it's it's an interesting uh, side to building a business how do you get a client base that leaves you 100% booked mm. every week so you and Steve also run the Naked Vocalist pod- podcast do you think that's had any, any impact on your client list yeah very much so actually um, I often find find out my clients that are currently with me for instance uh, would listen to the podcast um, maybe they picked it up after we started working together but it becomes a talking point because they might sometimes come in and say, oh, I actually tried that stuff in episode 32. Uh, and then we would talk about it a bit and, and they, they were like, I, I discovered something about myself in that episode, um, whatever. So I think that's really cool. It keeps the relationship and the, the development going for my clients. Um, when it comes to... Uh, an international business, which I also have managed to generate, that does largely come from the podcast because I spend two days in the studio in person. But thankfully, I'm able to work from home for um, two mornings a week um, from from Skype clients. And most of those have come through the podcast, which is really good. And they're all around the world. So uh, the no like, and trust scenario that everyone wants to feel when they book someone like me, like a coach, um, one-to-one, they want to be able to touch on different points of view on the internet, get your personality, get your knowledge, all those things that are going to help them to say, right, I'm going to make a decision and go with this person. Um, the podcast has been very, very valuable for that. Um, the last reason is as well is that I get to make a lot of professional connections through the podcast, uh, which for me increases my learning because the amount of people I talk to who have great things to say, um, I, I might speak to them afterwards and, and, and make connections with them after interviews um, they really help my development and they sometimes want to collaborate in workshops. Um, they might refer clients to me as well. So I, I, I'm very valuable for the professional connections that I've developed there as well. And I think as teachers, 
if if the aim is to have a have a um, a very busy diary is to work with professionals or it's to you know generally take over the world whatever you want to call it, it it's quite important to integrate professionally in my opinion um and teachers get a bit afraid of that and i've been afraid of that in the past as well because there's so much criticism out there um on social media but you can see it happening with teachers all over the world in that if you don't put something out there, like I put the podcast and the blog out there, I'll take the criticism and I'll change my mind if it's wrong and I'll make adjustments if I'm wrong. Mm. But I've, I'm slowly getting to the point where it's like the, the, the art of not giving a shit is really important. Mm. Um, put it out there, but don't, don't disintegrate yourself from the community who might criticize you because sometimes actually they're right a lot of the times they're not and they're very bad with it. <laughs> they don't say it in a nice way. But if you don't integrate yourself professionally, I find that generates pedagogy that is skewed. Mm. Because if there's only you inputting to your business, um, it's, a lot of people will corroborate their own thoughts and, you know, make sure, that, you know, it's, it's like a pride thing. So, I think my business and my teaching has taken such a wonderful turn in the last few years because I have integrated myself into all of those places and they've affected the way I've thought and taught. And the, the Naked Vocalist has been the catalyst for that um, and the source of much anxiety. But I, I, just, I wouldn't change it for, for the world. It's such a great tool for me. And the source of a lot of laughter for us listening. Yeah, I get to piss around with my best friend. It's just so like, eh? Um, but yeah, I, I, Steve is amazing. I love working with Steve. So um, yeah, long may it continue. We'll have him on the podcast at some point. Yes. So if you were going to give some top tips to teachers who are in the process of developing their skills and their businesses, what what three things do you think would be a priority? Oh, well, um, uh, the, the technical side of things that I know is, is, is a common thought out there is um, vocal exercises are very much focused on the voice. And they'll be, you know, they're like building registers, blah, 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 blah. All this stuff has relevance, but it's actually it's very surprising when you look above and below the larynx in, in the mind in some of the structures that you just wouldn't know you could move or feel like, like um, a tongue, for instance. Um, and the effect of things like shoulder on jaw and tension that comes referred from the body. It's quite amazing how, when some of that stuff is starting to fall into place, how much you don't need to work on vocal exercises. Um, to me, that's been a massive revelation and I really love that about it because uh, um, it can get you to that warm-up stage quicker, but it does help you to get to the bottom of singer's problems faster. Mm. Obviously, that's going to help your business because you're going to be known as a person who can just, you know, help and get it done and, and keep it done. So I, w I would urge teachers to look into some of the woo-woo stuff, as uh, Steve would say that, and I certainly used to feel like a lot of this stuff was woo-woo, but the physical connections to the voice and the mental connections are fascinating. And if you just, just have the right advice from the right person who knows what to do, you can use those tools and you'll, you'll be focused far less on the voice. And I think people learn better when they're not mechanically trying to use their voice, when it's a bit more um, holistic or imagery based, you know, if you can combine the two, you're in such a great place. So that's like what that's one of my top tips for for teachers to be able to get amazing at their job um, as a vocal coach quicker. Um, what was the other one? Was it? Did you say in business? Yeah. Um, I would say I mentioned it before. Um, it's it. It might not be. You might not want to put your personality out there, but um, video content generates business like like nothing I've seen. And uh, I made several videos before I uh, arrived at the right one. The first one, yeah, was like literally horrendous, but I still used it because I was almost fascinated with myself uh, in the video. <laughs> so oh, I like that. Then you look back and you go, God, what am I doing? Um, 
then the second one, I was actually quite pleased with it, although um, it was a little bit bland. But the first thing is that my bookings went up. And when people would inquire, this is before I had a booking system, people would inquire and say, I watched the video and instantly I knew I could work with you. I knew it was you I should book. And that was nothing to do with what I knew. It's just because they heard me talk. They could tell I was a bit laughy and I wasn't like serious and they could feel comfortable in that environment. So they were compelled to book. Uh, and then my last video, I kind of, I tried to keep that, but I tried to focus it on the business that I was ending up in at the moment, which is um, the professional client. Um, in which case I'm really happy with that video because it, it does bring about that sentiment, but without me, me going like me, 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 I'm so good. You know, I don't want to come across like that either. So yeah, if you, if you oh, got, yeah, I know, I know, I know I'm the best. I just can't actually say it. That's the thing. Um, but yeah, having worked on the podcast as well and worked on video editing a little bit, seeing what Steve does, that helped me to create a video that flowed nicely, looked good, would definitely appeal to the person I want to appeal to. And again, it's always commented on and it's really helped my business. So I'd say, look, get used to being in front of the camera, do a few rehearsals, but for the sake of business success, get some video content out there. Cool. Well, we have to sadly leave it at that. Um, which is, is a rather short conversation for us, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it absolutely is. It's only an hour. Yeah. yeah. So, um, thank you very much for uh, talking to us and sharing your wonderful wisdoms. And thank you. Thank we you for having to, Yeah, we look forward to seeing you in the community more. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to help out. And uh, I'm always good to talk to you, Lynn. Thank you, for, thank you for bringing me on. See ya. See you soon.